we're back. What have you been up to? I don't know. There's nothing much, man. Just, you know, it's the holiday, so I've just been watching some Christmas movies here and there. Nothing really worth talking about. Just, we like to watch, like, the really shitty ones. Like the Netflix original shitty ones? Yeah, like the Netflix original Hallmark ones. Like, we'll we'll put those on and we'll, like, do, like, other things, you know? And just to kind of have it on the background and laugh at. But, you know, they're not worth talking about or even mentioning. I guess if there's one holiday movie that I thought was like interesting was uh, the 2000 John Frankenheimer directed film Reindeer Games starring Ben Affleck and Charlie Theron and Gary Sinise. Not a bad movie. It's all right. I didn't think it was amazing, but I didn't think it was a terrible movie. The writing isn't very good, but it is a Frankenheimer movie. So if you're a Frankenheimer completionist, you're going to have to watch it. But I don't know if you're looking for kind of like a heisty action Christmas movie. Reindeer Games is probably one of the better ones you could watch. Ben Affleck plays an affable guy who gets out of prison and he kind of gets wrapped up in like this thing where he has to like help these criminals who thinks he's someone else rob a casino. And so it's kind of funny and silly and Ben Affleck kind of like uh, pulls one over on them a few times, which is kind of satisfying to watch. Once again, I I think that the like dialogue and writing itself is kind of not great. The writer who wrote this movie went on to create for uh, Top Gun Maverick and some top Transformers movies and stuff like that. I think it's worth watching. Like I said, it's not amazing, but it's definitely worth a watch during the holiday season. I think it's I think it's pretty good. It's got everything you would want in a movie like this, given the time period and those attached to it. Such high standards. Such great praise. I don't really care about Christmas movies all that much. There's some holiday standbys that I like, but I mean, we're just kind of watching stuff we haven't seen before. Speaking of theatrical experiences, I decided that On Tuesdays, I'm going to go to the movie theater now because I need that in my life. So this week, I had a couple decisions to make of what I was going to see in theaters. I thought about seeing Luca's new film, Bones and All. I thought about seeing Wakanda Forever. But at the end of the day, I saw Steven Spielberg's The Fablements. Yeah, I read your letterbox review, but yeah, continue. The Fableman seems like it would be the perfect film for me because I love movies about movies i love the whole movie industry i think spielberg's done some really great films i don't think anyone's gonna argue with that i don't necessarily love the films everyone else loves from spielberg but i do think he's done some spectacular work and deserves a lot of respect and i just have a lot of respect not only for him as a filmmaker but just as him as a film historian and someone who loves movies you know someone who grew up loving movies and i I truly admire that so Coming in the Fablemans, I had perhaps unfairly very high expectations because you got one of the greats making uh, basically an autobiographical film about his childhood. And there's some great performances in this. Paul Dano is great as uh, Mr. Fableman, as his nerd dad. Seth Rogen is in this movie. Did not know that. (laughs) I I did not know that uh, Seth Rogen would be in this movie. He does a very good job he plays uncle benny which i mean without spoiling anything he basically uncle benny's like they're kind of like a thruple but the dad's kind of purposely unaware of it it's not necessarily a cuckold situation but it's kind of pretty much that and it's a strange relationship between the three between his parents and his uncle so it's not his real uncle they just call him uncle benny but it's really like their friend it's supposedly uh mr fableman's best friend benny but 
it's very clear that Benny and Mrs. Fableman have a not necessarily sexual relationship, but something very close to it. And that's sort of the main conflict of the film. And of course, as uh, Spielberg makes very clear in all of his films, the divorce of his parents was the worst thing to ever happen. Yep. Obviously, my experience with divorced parents is very different because my parents got divorced when I was... I mean, they they separated on the day of my birth. So, you know, I don't... <laughs> he was a teenager, so it's it's a very different experience. I'm sure it's evident in the movie that, like, his parents are his biggest heroes or whatever. This film is very interesting because it simultaneously paints his father as almost godlike uh, in his kindness and just like him as a person like his father might as well be god himself honestly like there he can do no wrong he is a pure genius i think for a while spielberg didn't talk to his dad because he was upset with him because he thought like i don't know his dad was did something wrong or something like that that's so fascinating because the way he paints his parents is strange the way he paints his mom is not in a very good light. It, it's really strange, though, because in the film, the mother figure is perhaps the biggest supporter of Steven Spielberg's dreams, of, you know, the kids' dreams. She's always supporting, you know, his love for movies. She's the one who introduces him to a camera and takes him to a movie theater and all these things. And yet, at the same time, she is often the villain of the film. Like, she's often the one blamed for the separation of the two like in the film she is the person who steps out so to speak on his father and it's hard to gauge the relationship between these three characters and it is a very complex relationship and I, I think they do a good job of that but I don't think he necessarily does any favors for his parents they don't end up they're dead so it's okay yeah <laughs> like you probably wouldn't want to make this film if your parents were still alive because it does not paint them in a great light i mean the dad does look like he's basically perfect except his one flaw in the film is that he doesn't believe that filmmaking is an actual career like he thinks it's like a hobby but like that's a fair assumption to make like most people don't make movies like the dad's just trying to be like hey you know movies are great but And the mom, I don't know if she's supposed to be likable, but I find myself absolutely hating the character, like just despising her. She's just, personally, I find her to be the absolute worst, just like this incredibly selfish, egocentric person who cares for no one but herself. And even though like supposedly, you know, loves her kids more than anyone, there's even this scene in the film where she's cooking breakfast for the kids and she starts bawling and begging for the forgiveness from her son not because she actually wants to be forgiven like not because like she realizes that she's done something wrong which i mean has she that's questionable but like she's so obsessed with being loved with being liked that she can't see anything beyond herself like she doesn't actually give a shit about her kids she just wants her kids to like her i mean the scene literally ends with her like begging to be forgiven not because she wants to be a better person but just like she needs that in her life to constantly be forgiven. It's, I don't know like how accurate these depictions of his parents are, but it doesn't matter. But in the film, the mother character is kind of a bitch. It's, she's not a very likable character, kind of an awful person. Sounds good. I want to watch it now. Visually, it's a bit underwhelming. I mean, 
Steven Spielberg is best in spectacle. I think that's where he does his best work. And I think he knows that. I think that's why you know, some of his greatest films are films about spectacles, you know, these larger than life incidents. And you can tell that with a kind of smaller film like this, in which most of the film is kind of just people sitting around talking, he struggles a bit. I don't think this is his area of expertise necessarily. I think there are some directors who can do a very good job of it and some directors that struggle more with it and that doesn't mean either director is a better director or worse director they're just different types of directors and I found this film visually unexciting just because it he's just not very good at filming these kind of things it's just not his area of expertise and then as I wrote in the letterbox review my biggest complaint with the film is that there really is no inciting incident there is nothing pushing this film forward. It's kind of just a series of events. And when a film's two and a half hours long and there's nothing pushing the film forward, it drags. I mean, I, I really want to love this film. I really do. Definitely the most, in my view, the most controversial film of the year. I've seen some people say that they love it. They think it's great. I've seen some people say that it's just okay. And I've seen some people say that it's really bad. Probably the, the most controversial film of the year, at least from my perspective. Yeah, it's, I can understand why people love it. And at the very least love the idea of it. I find all of the stuff at the high school, because there's a lot of high school stuff, pretty dumb. It's pretty saccharine. And, you know, it's one of those movies where like, all of the evil teenagers are evil for like no reason. They're just like shitty people, but there's no yeah. there's no reason for them to be shitty people. Like they just are. And there's nothing to elaborate beyond that. Like there's no reason why these people are shitty. They're just shitty. And, you know, maybe that's just how like Spielberg like sees the world. Like, you know, there are certainly people who think like some people are just shitty people and some people aren't. Of course, I'm more of the uh, David Lynch philosophy where, you know, evilness is sort of this effervescence almost that you know isn't in any individual person but rather like takes over people or something I think that's a much more interesting idea but nevertheless I have to admit I spent pretty much all the film waiting for the John Ford scene I didn't know when it was going to happen it's the very last scene in the movie so if you go into this film waiting for the David Lynch John Ford scene you're gonna have to wait the whole film and I kept I kept waiting for it like I was so excited for this moment is it this? Is this a fucking story where Steven Spielberg um, is talking to John Ford and John Ford points out the horizon on the painting? Yeah, yeah. I've heard Spielberg's tell that story before. It's a great scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good story. David Lynch was perfect. He looks like fucking shit. Like he's got like this eye patch. He's like super skinny. He's got these baggy clothes. He looks so fucking old. And he's just smoking a cigar. And we've talked about this before. But in the scene, Fableman walks in and he's like, oh, Mr. John Ford, like I'm so excited. And Basically, all John Ford goes, he goes, look at that picture. And so he looks at the picture and he's like, describe it to me. And like, he tries yeah, to describe yeah. it. And he's like, no, 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 no. Where's the horizon? He's like, oh, it's at the bottom. He's like, good. Now go look at that picture. And he tries to describe it. And he's like, no, no, no. Where's the horizon? He's like, that's the top. <laughs> and then, of course, he goes, if the horizon's at the top, that's interesting. If the horizon's at the bottom, that's interesting. If the horizon's in the middle, yeah, never put in the middle. that's not interesting. Now get the fuck out. And that's the that's the final scene in the movie. And it's classic John Ford story. <laughs> classic John Ford. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Good story. Yeah. Gotta he had to put it. Steven Spielberg loved the story so much. He had to put it in film. He had to forever immortalize it. 
maybe my big disappointment with this is perhaps I was kind of hoping we would see Spielberg and kind of his early coming of age, like becoming a filmmaker. But the thing about this film is there's not really any of that. Like the film ends before Spielberg gets into any sort of filmmaking. Like he does some like stuff as he's a kid, which Mm -hmm. honestly to be like 15 and to make a film in the 1960s, very impressive. Like the amount of work involved and equipment and having to fucking cut and glue like literal film together as a 15 year old, very impressive. Like I'm very impressed with the fact that young Steven Spielberg was able to purchase the equipment because you need like fucking fancy ass equipment. Yeah, he, he started really young. According to the film, he started shooting you know, movies when he's like 10 or 12 years old. And then he started working for television, I think, really early, too. I don't even think he ever went to school or anything. Like, yeah, I think he made short films. You know, he made like films when he was a kid. And then he started like making films and working on them for not films, but for television episodes. And then I think, yeah, he was working on TV when he met uh, John Ford, um, I think. And then he moved on to films. So in the film, pretty much everything takes place during his pivotal years in middle school and high school and then he graduates from high school and then like jumps to a year later and he's living in Los Angeles with his dad and he doesn't have a job and he's just dropped out of school and they have the John Ford meeting but you don't get to see like any of the stuff like he's not hired onto any television show or you know he's not working like in the film industry at all I guess I kind of wanted to see that kind of stuff because that's the kind of like when I think of like biographies or you know visual biopics The parts I always find the most interesting are, as we've talked about before, these sort of uh, climbing to the top, you know, the sort of like starting at the bottom and working your way to the top. I always find that stuff to be the most interesting part of these kind of uh, stories. And you don't get that in this, which is, I mean, it's just not that type of film and that's fine. But I don't know. I'm glad I saw in theaters. I think it would be disrespectful to see The Fablemans not in theaters because it is Spielberg. So... I'm glad I got to support uh, Spielberg in this way. The theater was absolutely packed at 1 p.m. on a Tuesday, which is insane. Here we go. The movies are back. The movies are back, baby. I mean, I was the youngest person. No, they're not. (laughs) I think all the movies that are out right now are losing money. They're not back. They're actually the opposite of back. That's not a good business model for people who own a movie theater. (laughs) Maybe for for giant theaters or... Yeah. I'm I'm talking about movies, not movie theaters. The movie business, they they need to make better movies or at least ones that people want to watch. (sighs) Yeah, overall, I just wish it was a better film. You should. You should go see it. No, I'll go see it. I'll I'll eventually go see it. It's probably more interesting. Bones and All is probably a better movie, but Fablemans is probably more interesting. I feel that. I feel that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I only saw one movie in theater. Well, you know, I saw one movie in theaters this week. Went to the the Speed Cinema. Uh, We saw... uh, Decision to Leave by Park Chang-wook. Yeah, it's really good. Definitely one of the better movies that came out this year, for sure. You know, I expected a certain level of quality, and, you know, you, you get it. It's a Vertigo remix, so similar kind of thing going on. It's kind of hard to talk about just because it's like, you know, I'm not going to spoil or go into any plot specifics or anything, but, you know, it's just a well-engineered movie. Just the level and the amount of filmmaking techniques that are in it is just, I don't know, it's kind of hard to even, like, even quantify it's just a movie that just progresses perfectly and you know from a story and filmmaking perspective and you're constantly surprised and wowed by different you know filmmaking techniques that he uses different special effects that he uses and i don't know it's just kind of one of those movies where and this might be a good or bad thing depending on your perspective but it's just 
good. It just kind of has a lot going on. And despite it being almost two and a half hours, it didn't feel too long. And I really do recommend people go and see it. It's a Korean film, like we talked about with Lady Vengeance. It's just is a very surprising kind of propulsive story and plot and characters and crazy shit happens and it's super dramatic and the decisions that people make in the movie are crazy, you know, to the point where, you know, I'm like laughing a lot. There's a lot of, it's pretty funny too. I think there's a lot of funny stuff that happens in it as well. And I don't know, it's just a very romantic, extremely well-made, almost like nauseatingly well-made movie. Once again, I'm not going to go in specifics. Like I said, it's kind of a vertigo sort of thing. And yeah, just, you know, one of the better movies of the year for sure. Where does it rank uh, among his films? Like, where would you put it? I've only seen like, what, like four or five, four or five of his movies. Maybe like a little bit. I don't know. Like maybe Old Boy's my favorite. Maybe. I might even put it above or around Lady Vengeance. But I think Old Boy and Handmaiden are a little bit better than those movies. But honestly, like Old Boy, Handmaiden, Decision to Leave, Lady Vengeance, all those movies I think are, for the most part, pretty comparable in quality they're not showing that anywhere around here so i won't be able to to see that in theaters <laughs> they're only showing the fablemans at one theater so like i was l- lucky enough to be able to see that that's so crazy that just like i it's just crazy it's a new steven spielberg movie and it's just they're not really playing it very many places it's terrible i mean honestly if i wasn't into films i probably wouldn't have liked the film so i understand why i would not say the fablemans has a, a wide amount of people who would love the film i guess it's pretty niche and specific it's not really like a West Side Story remake or, or a Jurassic Park sequel, which has a very wide appeal, I guess. But I think The Fableman still has a wider appeal than people think it could have. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. And you know what? There was almost, I don't remember seeing a single trailer for The Fablemans. And I go to the movie theater almost every week. I didn't see a single trailer for The Fablemans. I don't know why there was like no marketing around the film. I don't know. It's weird. I don't understand. The only other film I watched, which I'm pretty sure we didn't talk about last week, was Me and My Gal. It's a 1932... Typical 1930s movie title. Typical 1930s film. It's very... Okay, there's not a whole lot going for it. Spencer Tracy's in it, and he's great. Early Spencer Tracy. All of the stuff Spencer Tracy does like as a... He's like this bumbling detective. All the stuff he does is great, and it's really funny. And very enjoyable but then there's this whole other s- plot line about like this bank robbery going down very badly done it, it's arguably the most boring fake robbery i have ever seen like i've never been more bored by people robbing a bank you would think like robbing a bank <laughs> is a fundamentally interesting activity like it could not be boring it, it's you're robbing a bank it has to be interesting like at a fundamental level that would be wrong you would be wrong to think that because the Bank robbery in this film is so boring, and the whole plot line is dumb and saccharine, and honestly, just a little bit silly, but not silly in like enjoyable, funny way, just kind of stupid. It honestly the only way to describe it. But if you're a Spencer Tracy fan, I think you would like this film. But if you don't like Spencer Tracy, there's no reason to watch this film because Spencer Tracy is the only thing going for this film. Like everything else about the film is just okay at best. I mean, it, it's fine. There's no, like no like great gags. It's visually just like a very typical 1930s film. So there's nothing really going in that lane. Writing wise, it's fine. There's nothing really like that clever about it. I wouldn't suggest you watch it, Andrew. I do not think you would like it. Yeah. I do not think you would you would like the experience. <laughs> okay. You know, if you love films from the 30s and 40s, 
give it a watch but there are so many better films uh, of this era it feels like a film at a time like even though it was made in 1932 other than the fact that there's sound it might as well be made in like 1922 like there's no real artistry in the visual aspects of it it's fine as far as movies goes it is one of them cool that's just a glowing recommendation the only other movie, uh, I guess for me, the only other movie worth talking about was uh, this uh, Middle Eastern kind of war movie called Syriana. It's a 2000s movie that came out in uh, 2005, directed and written by this guy named Stephen Gagan. And uh, he went on to, he wrote Traffic, that Soderbergh movie, which I'd never seen before. And he also wrote and directed the smash, the 2020 smash hit, Doolittle, starring Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> That was a big hit for him. But he wrote and directed this movie and from 2005 stars a bunch of fucking people. I've never seen Traffic, but I guess in Traffic, what it does is that it kind of jumps around to a lot of different characters who are in a lot of different places. In Syriana, it does the exact same thing. There's not really like... There's kind of like three main characters, basically. But it's definitely one of the more interesting and better 2000s kind of mid Middle Eastern war movies that I've seen in that there's really no violent, very little violence in it. There are no battles. There's no war stuff. There's like an explosion right at the beginning of the movie. There's a scene where George Clooney gets tortured. There's a couple explosions here and there throughout the movie, but it's a movie that is like more focused. And I could see some people not liking this at all, but it's a movie that's more focused on a lot of like the boring aspects of this stuff. It's a very hard to understand movie because there's a lot of like jingo getting thrown around about like the oil and like oil industry and like money and like just kind of energy trading and stuff like that. And it, it kind of a lot of it does go over your head to the point where that might just be a detriment to someone. I can see some people reading the title or reading the description, seeing the poster and turning it on. And then halfway through, they're just like, I have no idea what's going on. So you really got to pay attention to it. And even then I was paying attention to it and I was still having a hard time because it's just like, I don't understand. But it's just like a movie about the intersection between like the oil business, the United States and like cheeks, or I think that's what they're called, um, like in the Middle East. So it's just the intersection of all these different things of like terrorists, the CIA, the oil business, you know, United States government, of course, and like leaders in the Middle East too, like very powerful people who live there. And now they kind of like all intersect and interact with each other. That's really what the movie's all about. You know, people who have like competing interests. It's just very realistic. It's not jingoistic. It's not racist. There's some like evil people in the movie, but no one looks comically evil in the movie. Once again, though, it's a kind of an ambiguous movie. It's really sad by the end because it's it feels just completely it's like everything is so out of control. Not the greatest directed movie ever either. This movie is all about the writing. It's all about the interactions between these different like groups and different individuals. But if you're looking for something that's super duper exciting and explosive and has like gunfights and, you know, fighter jets and stuff like that, like you're probably going to be really disappointed. I just think it's one of the better like 2000s kind of like, you know, Middle Eastern war movies just because like, I don't know, it feels really honest. It's very critical, but not oh obviously so. It is kind of tough to sit through a little bit in my opinion. But I think by the time the movie wraps up, the the effect is uh, clear. That's, that sounds like a intriguing yet <laughs> complicated film. 
don't watch it like to be like, yep, I want to watch like a war movie. It's an oil business movie about oil and like, you know, we got to build pipelines. It's just like, uh, interesting. That, that sounds like, like an intriguing experience. I might, I might put that on the, on the watch list. I, I barely recommend it just because I think most people would be really bored given everybody's attention spans, but it's still a good movie. Everybody in the movie is good. You know, it kind of has like three main characters, George Clooney, Matt Damon, and Jeffrey Wright. But there are also other characters that the movie focuses on that it will jump to outside of those three characters. But the, those three characters are the ones on the movie poster, at least on the one on Letterboxd. But yeah, George Clooney's good. His uh, story is particularly, uh, I guess, sad or, you know, tragic. Matt Damon also has a sad story in the movie as well. I don't know how much else to say about it. It's just kind of, it's not an easy one, but it's, it's, I think, I think it says a lot of the stuff. Speaking about something that is an easy watch, I've gotten through almost all of Better Call Saul. I'm on season four. Season six isn't on Netflix, and I haven't gotten to it yet, but it's not anything yet, which makes me worried that it's not going to be on anything for a while, and then I'm just going to completely forget about the show and never finish it, because that's what happens. You just buy it or just like rent it somewhere. I don't love it that much. I don't know if I love enough to pay for it. I don't think I've ever rented a TV show before. Or even illegally downloaded a TV show before. I mean, movies, that's one thing. But I don't even, like, directly watch it. Like, I turn it on when I'm working. So I, I don't even actually see the screen very much. Which, whenever there's episodes with Mike, which are the best episodes, because there are episodes that are basically just Mike, there's very little talking. So it can be a little challenging for me to understand what's going on at those moments. Because Mike doesn't talk much. He's just, again, one of the best characters from Breaking Bad. And one of the best characters and Better Call Saul, at least like once a season, they'll do an episode that's just Mike. Like it's just Mike doing his shit, uh, getting involved with fucking drug dealers and all this. And it's great. Everything Mike does is great. All those three lines are great. As far as Better Call Saul goes, the first season I still think is really boring and is honestly a slog to get through. Season two definitely picks up. And I would say season three so far, I'm on, I just started season four, so I can't speak of season four yet. But I'd say so far, season three is the best season. One of the interesting things they do with the show that I don't know if I like or not is the very first episode of each season, they start with him in Nebraska, in Omaha, Nebraska, as like a the manager of a Cinnabon. And each season, like it's a little bit longer, right? In season one, it's only like a five minute thing. But like by season four, it's like probably a third of the first episode takes place in Omaha. And that stuff I would really like to see more of. I can tell that like in the final season, they do a lot. Yeah, I think I think you're going to get that. Yeah. I'm really interested by it. But I guess my big complaint with the prequel aspect of it, which I think prequels can be fine and there's plenty of good ones. But my biggest complaint is I'm now in season four and Saul Goodman is yet to work with any sort of illegal entity. Like he's still just a lawyer. Like we're we're four seasons into a show about, you know, the famous lawyer who worked with the, you know, Jesse and fucking yeah. Walter White, Mr. White, and he's still yet to work in like the drug industry or like any of this shit. That's cool. It's very well written. It looks great. There's some great editing. But I think the reason why it isn't as good as Breaking Bad is because Breaking Bad from the very beginning had like this one overarching goal. Walter White's going to cook meth and then he's going to die of cancer. 
it doesn't have that. And I get that they're kind of doing that with the black and white Nebraska Omaha stuff, but it's only in the first episode of each season. So like the rest of the season, there's nothing there. There's no like overarching pushing thing. And that makes it a little bit more challenging. I don't know if I'd be able to watch Better Call Saul if it was just like a show I sat down and watched. Like, I don't know if I'd be able to get through all five seasons of just sitting down and watching it. Not that it's bad. It's just, he's not doing any illegal shit. <laughs> it's just honestly, like, it's it's mostly just a lawyer show. And like every now and then he'll do like something like really like illegal and cool. And you'd be like, oh shit, why isn't that the show? And there's not really any good answer to that. Because like what Better Call Saul is suggesting is like when Jesse and Walter White meet Saul Goodman, he's only been doing like illegal activity for like a couple of years at most. So like, why is he so good at it by the time that he's in Breaking Bad? Because like at this point in Better Call Saul, we're like two years away. Because I know in the final season, like they, he meets with them. So he's got to start doing illegal shit soon. But what's basically being suggested is like, I don't know. I guess for me, I always imagined Bob Odenkirk's character, Saul Goodman, as like this master criminal lawyer who's been doing this for like 20 years. You know what I mean? Who like, he knows the shit. But in Better Call Saul, like it's... We're like two years away from him meeting with Heisman himself. And he's still just like a regular lawyer. Like he's just doing regular lawyer shit, which if you like lawyer shows, because there's like a million of them, it's definitely better than most of them. Like it's definitely like a top tier lawyer show. But I guess, I guess honestly, my biggest complaint with it is it, I didn't sign up for a lawyer show. I wanted like a Breaking Bad kind of show, you know, I'm like, 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 that's what I signed up for. Like that's, like you see all the characters, right? You see, you see Mike, you see, uh, who's the guy who runs Los Poyos Hermanos? I can't remember his name. Gus. He's finally in it. Like once he gets it in season three, like that's great. All of his stuff is amazing. But Saul Goodman's just doing regular shit. And it's, it's really disappointing. I mean, Mike's totally badass. And, you know, he's doing some badass shit and just an old man beating people up and killing people. And it's great. And I love it. And they do spend a lot of time with Mike and his family, which is another great storyline. I think that's the one good thing about the first season is Mike has this storyline where his son is murdered and they think he's murdered because he's a corrupt cop. But the actual fact is, is everyone else in the force is a corrupt cop and he's the only one that's not a corrupt cop. When I started watching Better Call Saul, I I saw that part as well. How far into Better Call Saul did you get? I think I got like a little bit over halfway through the first season or something like that. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. It's great to have in the background because there's a lot of like good like writing. So it's great to listen to, but there's some very good editing involved. But I guess it's strange because honestly, like the people who love Breaking Bad, I don't think would love Better Call Saul. And I think the people who love Better Call Saul wouldn't necessarily like Breaking Bad. Visually, you can tell that they're made by the same people, but the vibes are very different between the two, more so than you would expect, which for better or for worse. But I don't think there's going to be a lot of people who love Breaking Bad and love Better Call Saul. I think most people are going to be either one or the other, which, you know, to each their own. They're just very different shows. Yeah, I agree. Is that it? I think that's it. Cool. That's it. (laughs) All right, y'all. Thank you for listening. And until next time. Thanks again.